Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. So, how do you know if your startup idea is any good? After all, coming up with ideas is easy. Knowing how to evaluate them before spending a lot of time and money? Well, that's, that's a real skill. And we're going to get to that. Today, we sit down with Yo Shibata, serial entrepreneur, investor, and well-known figure in Japan's startup ecosystem. We talk about where Japanese startups are heading and the big bet Yo is making on his next startup. A big bet based on the idea that the current B2B SaaS boom in Japan has got it all wrong. Now, Yo's theory flies in the face of all common knowledge about the Japanese market. But as longtime fans of Disrupting Japan know, I am a hopeless contrarian. Anyone who can make a compelling case about why conventional wisdom is wrong always has my full attention. I just love those stories and ideas, and I love bringing them to you. So Yo and I dive deep into why Japan's current SaaS trend might be about to reverse itself, and what might take its place. We talk about what it's like to be acquired by Rakuten, how corporate Japan is getting better at M&A, and of course, how to know if you actually have a good startup idea. But you know, Yo tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. So we're sitting here with Yo Shibata, serial entrepreneur and investor. So thanks for sitting down with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Pretty excited. I'm excited to have you here. And I mean, Yo, you've done so much here. You've started a number of companies. You've started your own fund. You even have your own podcast. It's a great opportunity to really dig in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much. Just for background, let's let's talk about your startups. There's been a lot of them. Right. Your first one you started in college, right? Yes. That was when I was uh, 19 or 20 years old. I uh, started a small company with my friend. It was SEO consulting firm. That was uh, back in 2005 or something like that. Was that something you planned on like scaling into a big company or was that just beer money for you and your friend? Back in 2005 in Japan, there was no venture capital, especially like seed stage. Very rarely saw angel investors. They usually took majority stakes with like $50,000 or something like that. Yeah, and back then, angel investors, they were all like doctors or lawyers. They weren't startup people at all. Exactly, and startups didn't have any like bargaining power. So um, if they offer um, $50,000 with half of the company, you know, the only choice is to accept. So that, that was the situation back then. We had the ambition to become big, but there were like no... Uh, knowledge on how to scale a startup. So I don't know if SEO company is sufficient to go public or not. Yeah, I could see that. That, That's the kind of 
as you know now, I mean, that that's the kind of startup that's really hard to scale. It scales linearly. As you get more clients, you need more experts. Exactly. Exactly. So after you shut that down, you started Code Start. Exactly. So after I left the initial startup, I joined McKinsey and spent three years as a consultant. And then around 2010, so iPhone launched in Japan. And I saw a lot of startups in the US. The AWS was available. Uh, iPhones were taking off. So there were like platform. So it became really easy to start a web service. So I left McKinsey and started a small app that enables users to compare price by scanning barcode. Uh, it was a good timing, the great timing. I got almost like 1 million downloads when there were only like 4 million devices sold <laughs> in Japan. So like more than 20% penetration to users. But there were like no business model. And so I sold that company. Then I started a new startup. So when you sold it to IMJ, right? Yes, IMJ. What did they want to do with that product? IMJ at that time was basically consulting business. Then they wanted their own web service, not B2B, but B2C service. They thought our service is like good start for them to start direct-to-consumer like media business. So they viewed it as a way, as a means of customer acquisition? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. How did that work out for them? Did, did, it, did it work out? It didn't work out for them. After spending several years, they again sold our service to Opt, I think. There were like a lot of users uh, still, hundreds of thousands of users, but there were not, no, no like monetization. Yeah, it's just, it, it's a clever use. People love it, but it's, it's really tough to put a business model around that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. There were like a lot of uh, such mobile apps back then, like no, no business model. E even like Instagram it didn't have any business model. So that was like... That's true. It, it was this, this great experimental time, right? It was all this new technology. We were suddenly walking around with these supercomputers in our pockets. Cloud computing had made spinning up a business super cheap and the whole world was trying to figure out what to do with it. Exactly. It was fun times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was fun times. For the initial version, I think we only spent $5,000 to develop. And then, yeah, and then it got downloaded 1 million times. So that, that was a crazy time. Okay. So after that sale, you, you dove right back in and you started a Spotlight, which was a online points management, right? Yes, it's a location-based service. You go to uh, retail stores and check in, and then you earn points just by walking into the stores. Yeah, I've always been kind of amazed at how powerful the point system is, membership points. <laughs> In Japan. <laughs> yes! Japanese consumers love these, these point programs. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The interesting thing is that uh, consumers will react, like giving 2% of the, the purchased amount and give back like 2% points to the customers, then just discounting 5%, they don't react, but giving like double points, they, 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 <laughs> they, they're going to buy. So it's strange. This has been researched to death and the consumers even know. <laughs> They'll yeah, tell yeah, you yeah. like, yeah, that's not it, you know. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe that's kind of like gamification or some yeah, sort yeah. of like, yeah, very interesting. 
So that was rolled into Rakuten's massive Rakuten point system. Exactly, yeah. How did that end up? What was the end result? Uh, it went well. Rakuten, at that time, they were trying to launch a new point card to the real retail stores. So they, they wanted the unique feature to convince retail chain to join their ecosystem. Uh, so they, they used us to penetrate into uh, retail stores. And it, it was successful. And our company merged with Rakuten Payment. It became also huge for Rakuten. But it was a good acquisition, I think. I want to get back to your, your Rakuten experience in, in just a minute. Okay. But because the next thing you did after you sold your company to Rakuten, you started the Tokyo Founders Fund. Yep, the Angel Investment Fund. And that was really unique and interesting at the time. Yes, it was. For our listeners who aren't in Japan, even now, but especially in 2015, most funds, the investment committee were finance guys. It was extremely unusual to have anyone with startup experience making investment decisions. Exactly. Even now, I think, we rarely see uh, venture capitalists with a true, real entrepreneurial background. Yeah. I, I think that is one of the one of the weaknesses of Japanese VC in general, the fact that they tend to be really smart finance guys. Yeah. And so there's a lot of things they overlook. But how is the Tokyo Founders Fund viewed by other VCs? Well, we weren't like competing against the Japanese VCs because we, we wrote small checks to very early stages and we uh, focused on overseas investment uh, at that time. So, um, and it was like, very welcomed. I think Japanese uh, startup community, including VCs, are very supportive of successful entrepreneurs funding and helping the next generation of uh, entrepreneurs. Do you think there was a lasting impact? It seemed to me it had this such potential to change the way right, right. VCs looked at investment. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it had some impact. And also timing-wise, around that time, a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs went public or got acquired and had some cash to invest. And like angel investing became like kind of became mainstream in Japan. Like angel investing by successful entrepreneurs, and I think Tokyo Founders Fund was very um, symbolic of the time. So. It played a role model, I think. You know, young entrepreneurs investing into the next. So, so here we are seven years later. Has much changed? I think so, yeah. A lot of young tech founders or co-founders or like early employees got rich by taking the company public. So there was like a kind of a boom of NJ investors. Yeah, there has been a lot more smart angel investment, experienced angel investment that's coming to Japan, people with actual startup experience investing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that really has changed in the last five, six years. But what about the VC side? I feel like I'm still not seeing many uh, founders on investment committees. No, it's, it's pretty rare, I think. Um, I, I don't know the reason. I don't know why, but it's gradually changing, I think. At least, like... For the seed round, there are some 
like super angels or like angels with bigger checks and they could they compete against early stage VCs or they could give us some like peer pressure to um, VCs and then if those people are on the cap table of startups even for the later rounds they can provide some advice or you know give some pressure to later stage VCs you know the startup community is all like reputation based that makes sense so even even if like the VCs themselves aren't changing the whole funding ecosystem has changed so much yep and we get the same result well, that's cool hey do you want to talk about your new project or is it too early <laughs> it's kind of early it's it's maybe it's the first time that i uh, talk about my new project oh awesome now we got to hear about it <laughs> after i left spotlight after got, the company got acquired by rakuten i spent almost like six years looking for my next project the reason I spend that much time is based on my uh, experience. I-, I thought it was pretty important which domain to pick, which industry to pick, which idea to pick. And it determines a lot. People should be more aware about idea picking phase, like market selection and timing. You know, actually, founders always get asked, like, how do you come up with ideas? Which I always think is the wrong question. <laughs> Right. It's easy to come up with ideas, right? Yeah. The better question is like, how do you personally filter your ideas? Good question. What's the criteria you use to say, okay, no, no, these three ideas aren't worth working on right now? Mainly two aspects. First is the timing of the entry. So every market has a like entry window that allows new small companies to enter the market and become successful, become like like rapid, rapid. So you're trying to like identify a growing market that's still early. Yeah, exactly. Not not just growing, but changing market. So, something has to change for for the market to allow new entrants to challenge and become a uh, dominant player in the market. Something has to change. So that's one thing. And the other thing that I realized recently is founder market fit. Yeah, I tend to ignore that, but uh, <laughs> in the end, I, I thought it was pretty important. So founder market fit means is the, is the industry or like business model has a fit with my skills or like my characteristics. I agree. That is just so, so important, even from my own experience. All of my startups that have been even moderately successful have been like enterprise SaaS software. Yeah. That's what I know. That's what I'm good at. I've experimented with other things that have involved ad sales. <laughs> that, and, and, you know, it just it hasn't worked out for me. Right, right, right. The, I think that's super important. You, you got to realize what you're gifted at, right? And, and don't fight it. <laughs> exactly. Don't fight it. Because... Sometimes you're tempted to try new things or like, you know, like B2C, like pure web service is like cool, like your social network is cool, kind of <laughs> video streaming service is cool. But if you don't have fit, ultimately you're going to suffer. Yeah. Every founder needs to bring some kind of core insight yeah. to, to what they do. 
you know it, it's not just passion it's it's there's there's something you have to see that others aren't seeing i agree yeah, i agree yeah, hey, I don't want to push. I, I'm happy to edit out that other part. If you're if you're not ready to talk about the details, we don't have to. The, the, the new new project. So so the new project is that it's a B2B software company. It's kind of backend as a service platform, backend for business applications, for example, CRM, HR management, expense management, workflows. Those kind of business softwares for uh, that that'll be used in large enterprises. Large enterprises, their requirement is like very complex, so they tend not to use uh, off-the-shelf uh, package softwares or SaaS. Oh, this is interesting. So it's basically creating a SaaS-like platform, but something that's highly customizable. Exactly. Yeah. That I don't know. I think that's super interesting in Japan. Yeah. Because the B2B SaaS is, is huge in Japan just because, um, oh, enterprise IT in Japan is, is pretty out of date. But yeah, from all the B2B SaaS, the consistent pushback from their customers is lack of customization. And, and when they lose sales, it's because, <laughs> yeah, they can't customize. So no, I, I like the positioning of this. I like it. Thank you very much. Yeah, exactly. So Japanese corporations, especially like large enterprises i i don't know why but they don't want to change their processes they just want a system that fits their processes so it's, it's the other way around uh, the concept of SaaS is like taking the best practice of the industry and translate that into software and if you use this software your process could become the industry best practice it's but for whatever reason a japanese company doesn't like it I don't know. I, I think there is a core insight there. So if we look at the original SaaS company, right? Salesforce. Yeah. Salesforce <laughs> is not today a one size fits all. It is this incredibly customizable. Exactly. Yeah. Sales, I, I think Salesforce is the only company that that has this core insight. I think they are brilliant. It's, the Salesforce is a brilliant company. As I said, they're copying like superficial like salesforce concept but it's actually it's not that well thought out yeah salesforce pretty rapidly moved from being a one-size-fits-all no software plug-and-play SaaS to a enterprise platform exactly yeah and they are still trying to become more and more customizable yeah maybe like microsoft and other big platform companies gets it but not like Japanese SaaS company. They, they are just selling products. And that gives you a great go-to-market using system integrators as a channel because they need something like this. Yep. Oh, we're, yo, yo, we're going to have to get you back on the show like in about a year. <laughs> and, and, because I want to know how this turns Let's out. Let's see. Let's see. Yeah, it's a, it's a long game. I, I, I think it takes time to build such kind of platform. It takes time to convince not only like enterprises, but also this vendor ecosystem like partner companies it's gonna take a while and also we have to like find some niche that salesforce and microsoft are not interested in but yeah we'll figure out um let's let's back up again i want to ask you about some of the mergers and acquisitions 
For example, when Rakuten bought Spotlight, did you and the team move to Rakuten or was it more of just a asset sale where you gave them the keys and they drove it away? <laughs> it was an acquisition, including the team. So we joined Rakuten. I spent two years as a Rakuten subsidiary uh, company CEO. How did that go? Because I know from my own experience of like Digital Garage buying my company, yeah, it was rough. Um, <laughs> it, it was, I mean, there were wonderful people and all, but just the, the difference in cultures was just extreme. And it, it, was, it was hard on my team. So how, how was your experience? Yes, uh, my experience wasn't so bad. So Rakuten has already acquired like more than 100 companies. And they have like ton of knowledge about post-merger management. Decision I regret was that for the first year, we didn't move our office in Rakuten's office. So we had like separate office. I thought it was a good idea, you know, having less impact on employees. Like Yeah, yeah, less jarring. But that led to not only two types of employees, but three types of employees. So one is like, obvious, it's early members, like people who joined when we were just a startup, not a subsidiary of Rakuten. And after full integration, like we all moved to Rakuten Tower and people who got hired after that is like Rakuten's employee. Like they are very clear about the identity. But the problem is like people stuck in the middle like we, we were already acquired so there's no upside but they had like different office th different work roles and and all that yeah yeah and i'm sure rocketin had a much nicer office exactly yeah <laughs> so uh that was a bad decision i i should have moved more quickly but that's a hard call to make i mean i i've heard it go both ways yeah i i mean it certainly makes sense that it's better to integrate the teams, avoid this different class of employee yeah. feeling. But I've also talked to founders who, after their, their company was acquired, really valued that independence. Yeah. Really needed that independence to, to function. So it's a hard thing. Exactly. But the question is like... How long are you going to be independent, you know? like Yeah, you got to do it eventually, right? Yeah, exactly. So this is one of the things I think... Now, Rakuten's a good example. As you, as you mentioned, they've done... How many M&As do you think they've done? More than 100. Okay, they figured out what works for them, right? I think most companies, it's still pretty new. And it's hard. A lot of times, founders, their first day, it's like, okay, you're, you're now reporting to this bucho. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think the difficulty is, especially a Japanese executive, even like board of directors, their incentive is not designed to take risks. So they don't want to like fail. But, you know, M&A is a high risk deal. It's highly likely that the deal fails. I think that's the main problem. Yeah, I, I, it is. I, I think... That desire to, to fit the startup into a traditional management chain, that managing to avoid failure at all costs, yeah. is it's really hard for a startup team to do. Exactly. Um, hey, well, listen, along that theme, can you talk about some of your own failures? Some of the, the projects you started but didn't work out like you expected? There are many. 
So I tested a, uh, a TikTok like video sharing platform, uh, <laughs> like maybe 2019 or something. They don't work out at all. It's kind of very difficult, very competitive. And the user's expectations to experience is like went so high, so, so high. I think it's only, only like geniuses could, could put off that kind of, uh, but I also think there's, there's some point of luck to it too, because when you mentioned like the TikTok idea, do you know, um, Hirano Miku yeah, uh, Hirano. from Cinnamon? Yes, of course, of course. She had a, a failed startup that was TikTok idea before TikTok. Yeah, and couldn't couldn't make it work. I, I don't know if it's it's only like maybe it has to do with some the way to do it or like small features. Of course, luck plays a big role. Yeah, I I think so. But I also think that or I, I don't like this whole idea of like celebrating failure because failure sucks and <laughs> that's fine. It, it does, you know. It's not yeah. fun. Not fun. But I think new founders would be better better prepared if they understood like. Even the successful serial entrepreneurs, it's a very small percentage of the projects that are actually become successful. Yeah. Pivot is always um, a necessity, I think. Also, it's really important to stop and quit, close the project if you think it's not working early on. Can you tell me a time you, where you've had to do that? Because that's a hard decision to make. Yeah. So there's a, always this... A, kind of point of no return event. Everything before that, you should stop if you think it's not working. I think responsibility as a founder is to delay as much as possible that point of uh, no return. So what, what's an example? Like outside the investment, um, hiring full-time employee that you can't let go of easily. If it's like very like high skilled CTO or something like that, you can always stop and, and let, let him go because he doesn't have any like job security issue. But if, if you hire like three new grads, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, I get that. It, it, it's, it's, you're saying when you feel responsibility yeah. for other people. Yeah. So yeah, if you hire a bunch of people who need this salary to, to eat, yeah. that is a responsibility. If you, if you take money from a VC, you have agreed to play the game a certain way. Exactly, yeah. And you've got that responsibility. Yeah, that's, that's, a, good, that's a good way of thinking of it. And I think, yeah, I, I think in my own shutdown startups, it, it's, yeah. always been, it's always been something like that, yeah? Yeah. Because it forces you to look at yourself and like, is this really... Exactly. What I, <laughs> do I really think I can pull this off? Uh, uh, right, right, right. Um, hey, you, you spent some time in San Francisco, right? Yep. And New York. Yeah. And just to kind of like be there and learn and, and see how things are done. Yep. What's the most important thing you, you learned from the U.S. and brought back to Japan? Good questions. I, I, there are like so many participants to this startup game in the U.S., the competition is like maybe 10 times harder. On the other hand, maybe the prize, if you win the game, is more than 10 times, maybe 100 times. So that's worthwhile, but it makes sense. But the sheer number of people who are trying to join the entrepreneurial game, I think it's, it's the core difference. 
That means more challenges, more extreme ideas because you have to differentiate with others. More kind of winner-takes-all situation. Yeah, that's true. That, that pace is so much faster in the U.S. Yes.、Um, it, it, is, it is this relentless pace. This relentlessness. Yeah, is the a, is a, is a biggest difference, like fundamental difference. Is that good? I think it depends on how, how you like competition. It's way easy to be successful in Japan because of the、uh, in number of competitors. But it has own like, limitations. It really it is a startup that goes global because the、uh, Japan market is kind of unique. Yeah, well, that, that's certainly true. I mean, you can't, you can't take US startup culture and just bring it to Japan, it won't work. Right, right. Culturally and, and institutionally, it's just different. It is. Universities play a much bigger role in Japan, enterprise companies play a much bigger role in Japan. Yes. What do you think we should be doing? What, what could we do to strengthen the startup ecosystem in Japan? Either something coming from the US or just something that should be done. More people studying companies. That's one、just、thing. Just more people getting out there and doing it. And the other thing is like more people who are willing to accept changes, generally speaking,、uh, both consumer and、uh, business buyers. Because、uh, they are very conservative in terms of decision making. It directly reflects on sales cycle. Yes, yeah. Let's say it, like, sales cycle is three months in the US. Maybe it takes like nine months or 12 months in, in Japan. Just th- that kind of decision making. It slows down everything. It is true. You know, I think that, the, but that's one of the. The biggest advantages of having a real startup ecosystem in Japan now, like during the dot com boom, there were plenty of startups, but they were all either selling to consumers or to enterprise. But now the ecosystem is big enough, a lot of startups are selling to each other. Yeah. And innovation will, will get adopted quicker, and, and like the use cases and success cases can happen faster. And then they can take it to the enterprise and say, see, we've got these customers, they're very happy. So, I think that's been a really good positive change. Exactly. Especially, we are seeing it in、uh, online businesses, mainly like e commerce.、Uh, a lot of online businesses started very recently. So, a lot of the managers in those businesses have a very progressive mindset. On the other hand, very old industries, it's, it's still the same. So, we need more people challenging that kind of industries. So, if we, I mean, definitely need more people starting companies, but what kind of startups do we need more of, or what kind of startups do we need less of? <laughs> what I'm seeing right now, my background, or I've been to a consulting firm, I've worked in McKinsey. So, current junior member in McKinsey, they, they really want to start a new company. They really do. It has changed a lot. But the problem is that they can't find ideas. Of course, idea generation is like, tough, but so my solution is that first, we have to turn around the old industry, make them accept, for example, like,、uh, IT tools, not using pencil and paper or fax machines. So, just the basic digital transformation. Yeah. And to do that, the incentive needs to be created. The best way is maybe to acquire those、uh, old small businesses and then consolidate,、uh, roll up, 
and then take it public or like sell to another private equity kind of players. What kind of businesses? What kind of industries are you? Oh, everything, everything, everything. So, I am seeing very early trend: small M and A's below ten million dollar. So very small companies, like a small manufacturer or like even like cleaning, laundering business. Very small. Turn it around and then buy another company maybe and merge two of them and then sell it to private equity. It, it starts this. Cycle of uh, productivity improvement. Yeah, well, we, that, I mean that certainly has been a successful trend over the last twenty, thirty years in the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like simultaneously, we we can have new services to provide solution for those type of companies. The yeah, get economies of scale happening. Yeah. All right. Well, it sounds like your overall outlook is is pretty positive for for the future <laughs> of of Japan here. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, yeah. Hey, well, listen, you. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. I really appreciate it. Likewise, it's my pleasure. And we're back. There were two points Yo raised about innovation that that I really loved. First, I, I loved Yo's framing of founder market fit. Sure, great managers can execute in almost any industry. But great founders, they they need an understanding and insight into the industry they want to disrupt. You need to be able to see something that others don't. Second, is the importance of the innovation trigger, the innovation platform. So smartphones and cloud computing emerged at about the same time, and that blew open the doors. It created an innovation platform that allowed us—that no—that really forced us to rethink the way we do almost everything. And we saw the same thing when personal computers and the internet formed the innovation platform that fueled the dot-com boom. But getting back to Yo's new project, SaaS as a configurable, fully customizable platform. Rather than a low-cost, low-maintenance, streamlined system, it's certainly going against a very strong industry trend and all conventional wisdom. But can it work? Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, on the risk side, Yo seems to be attaching himself to an inefficient market, and that could put the venture at risk of shrinking margins. Lower budgets and higher risk aversion in general. Many enterprise customers are actively trying to reduce their dependence on systems integrators right now. On the other hand, those are very long-term trends. In the short and medium term, there will probably be a lot of demand from system integrators who need something like this to counter the business they're losing to SaaS competition. So there would be plenty of time for Yo and the team to pivot and align to long-term trends once they have a good user base, or, of course, to simply continue as planned if Yo's theory about the long-term success of SaaS turns out to be the correct one. It's a very interesting move, but one thing is absolutely certain: the first startup to enter the market with a customizable SaaS platform like this. Has a far better chance of success than 
the 10th startup who enters the market with a Me Too HR management SaaS platform. And, and that's not just the hopeless contrarian in me speaking. That's just good common sense marketing and positioning. Innovation is about bringing something new into the world. Innovation is about doing things differently. If you want to talk more about SaaS and the future of startups in Japan, Yo and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 190 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee Yo or I or maybe both will respond. And hey, if you like the show, tell people about it. In this age of omni-channel advertising and reviews as a service, you'd be absolutely amazed how much power your honest recommendation really has. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.